I love the talking guy show. I hear two guys talking. 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 Two guys talking are here. I hear two guys talking. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers! Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Welcome back, everyone, to the ScammerCast. This is your co-host, Curtis Bailey. And this is your other co-host, Art Maines. And we are talking with someone today who is really going to add to your understanding and knowledge about the crucial role that emotions play in scam and fraud victimization. We've spoken here on the ScammerCast numerous times about the critical role that emotions play in scams and fraud. Emotions overpower and send your thinking brain offline where your trusty scam detector lives. And, and, you know, we have one entire episode earlier in our seasons devoted to the importance of emotions, which you can find at scammercast.com. It's the episode called The Five Flags. But today we're going to go a lot deeper with Marty DeLima of the Stanford Center on Longevity, as she tells us about this amazing research that she's been conducting that really sheds light on how scammers get reasonable and intelligent people to fall prey to various kinds of frauds and ripoffs. Yes, you won't want to miss this episode of the ScammerCast. Sponsored by Midwest Trust and Western Union. Marty, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Great. So good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell our listeners your your backstory. How in the world did you get into this area of interest in research? (laughs) Well, I graduated from UCLA with a degree in biopsych, and I I first wanted to to do research in clinical psychology, and I found this job working for a geriatric psychiatrist. She was a researcher at UCLA at the School of Medicine. Her name was Dr. Helen Lavretsky. Mm-hmm. And she was doing all of these studies on the health benefits of Tai Chi and meditation on reducing depression hmm. in caregivers with older adults and the caregivers of older adults with dementia. So that's what got me interested in aging and also the challenges of caring for a dependent senior. So after two years in that lab, I applied for the PhD program at USC, the School of Gerontology. And that's how I started, looking at elder abuse, neglect, financial exploitation. Over time, my research interest shifted from financial exploitation to older adults and into fraud. And so that's how I ended up here at the Stanford Center on Longevity in the Financial Security Division. So to us, successful aging is reaching old age, uh, mentally sharp, physically fit, and financially secure. But a major threat to financial security in older age is being a victim of fraud or financial exploitation by family members. So part of our mission at the center is to partner with faculty on campus as well as bring in all the change makers in the community to identify solutions to those really pressing societal problems. And in 2011, the Stanford Center on Longevity and the FINRA Investor Education Foundation launched the Financial Fraud Research Center here at Stanford. 
since then, it's actually just been absorbed into the full Stanford Center on Longevity. But the goal of the initial center was to consolidate research on fraud, so to kind of act as like this research clearinghouse and then connect researchers to practice by bringing in all of those stakeholders and identify funding opportunities. Well, interesting. So tell our listeners about the Stanford Center on Longevity. Uh, How long has it been in existence, and what kinds of things do uh, you research there at the center? The Stanford Center on Longevity was funded in 2006 by Dr. Laura Carsonson. She's a psychologist here and also in Dr. Tom Rando, who's a physician. And there's three divisions. There is the mind division, financial security division, and mobility division. And we Mm. do a lot of really interesting research in all three. In the mobility division, we host the Stanford Design Challenge, where we invite students from all over the world to submit and kind of pitch in kind of like a venture capitalist type of setting their idea for solving a problem with aging. So it could be assistance for standing up from a seated position for an older adult, or it can be solutions to help older adults stay more socially engaged with their family members from long distance. So that's really fun. We do that every year. Then in the financial security division, we do a lot of work on how can we encourage people to work longer? You know, people are living much longer lives, and how can we kind of reinvent the life course? So instead of loading all of your education into your earlier stages of life, Why not sprinkle education and volunteer opportunities throughout the life course so that we can stay more productive and more engaged all the way into late life? I've been reading about this, and I just think that's a brilliant idea. Why in the world would all of a person's education be (laughs) front-loaded in their first 25 years? I mean, it's just uh, fantastic to have, like, maybe every five years, every 10 years, something like that, some more education because technology and knowledge are advancing so fast. Yeah, and people aren't staying in one job their entire lives. They're switching careers, they're having families later, they're getting married, buying homes later. But, you know, we have this incredible structural lag in our society where we're still kind of following this old system where when life expectancy was the late 70s, and yeah. that's the way our whole retirement system was set on. But you really can't fund a 30-year retirement off of 40-year work life. That's just not feasible. Right, right. And now, I mean, financial advisors I talk to say, you might as well just plan on living to 95 and making sure that your money lasts that long. Mm-hmm. So I can see where people would work longer. Yeah, and and go back to school and get retrained. Right, right. Uh, one of the issues that I, I noticed that you guys have been researching, and perhaps you specifically, is trying to really classify and measure and prevalence and cost of problems like elder financial abuse and exploitation and all that stuff. So what, what are you finding in that area specifically? Yeah, so very recently, the Stanford Center on Longevity partnered with FINRA Foundation and also the Bureau of Justice Statistics. So they're the group that administers the National Crime Victimization Survey. And our mm-hmm. goal was to develop a survey instrument to really understand and estimate the national prevalence and cost of financial fraud targeting individuals. And we were focused on the seven major categories of fraud. So those are listed along with their definitions and all of the subtypes of fraud in a paper that we wrote here called A Framework for Taxonomy of Fraud. And it's basically this structural organizational scheme for Mm -hmm. fraud, and it's publicly available on our website. And in developing this survey instrument and getting back some of the data now, we're recognizing how incredibly challenging it is to get valid survey estimates. And 
That is mainly because people have all different thresholds of what experiences they think constitute fraud. Mm, So looking at the qualitative responses we got in the survey, you know, some people were reporting very true experiences of fraud, like sending money to someone because they were told that they won a lottery or a prize. But then we also got these other experiences reported, like I was overcharged for my food at a restaurant, or I didn't like that product that I bought on Amazon. (laughs) It was Mm. bad quality. So to try to get the respondents on the same page as the researchers when they're answering a survey is very challenging, Mm. because we did also some other research last year that looked at how you frame a survey affects your rates of reporting. So if you use the word fraud and scams and you frame it in this victimization context, people are less likely to report their experiences. You know, they might feel more ashamed about it. We chose to not use that language, but then what happens is you get this kind of overestimation of the problem. Right, right. So what were the uh, one or two most common types of fraud that people did report through the survey? It's definitely consumer products and services at Mm. this point. That's just the biggest category, and you have to think, you know, those are the areas where people are most engaged in the marketplace. So home repair, computer virus removal, things like that. But investment fraud was also very common, and we're not done with cleaning the data, so you'll have to check back in with me later, and I can share more of the findings. But fraud prevalence was higher than we anticipated. Wow. And and so we will have links to this paper at, on our website at scammercast.com. Now, was part of the study also to, to try to estimate the cost involved to uh, yep. how much is lost in these various forms of frauds and scams? Yeah, we were interested in estimating the cost. That's a lot often the question that we get from people, you know, well, you, you tell me fraud is a big problem, but really how much are people losing? And right now estimates range anywhere from, for older adults, $3 billion to $36 billion a year. So we really need to find a more accurate estimate. And again, memory subjective, people might not, you probably get underreporting at both the low end and at the high end of yeah, losses. Right. Yeah. So it's a challenge. It's a it's very challenging to try to get to the bottom of this. But the idea is, if you can prove that it's a big problem, money for research and prevention will follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of leads us into uh, another area of interest for us and uh, for our listeners as well, I believe. And that's your work on identifying fraud risk factors. And it seems to me that you found some results that some people might find surprising. Say a little bit more about this part of your work and and what you found there. You know, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that we haven't been able to find any universal risk factors because different types of fraud tend to target different types of people. Right. If you think about investment fraud, if you look just at the risk factors for investment fraud, AARP did a study and they found that it's actually males who are relatively higher socioeconomic status and have more education and higher financial literacy that are targeted by that type of scam. Mm-hmm. But if we look at you know bogus lotteries and sweepstakes scams, we actually find that it's older 
widows, often female, lower socioeconomic status, and poor financial literacy. So this whole idea of, oh, it's poor financial literacy, that's a predictor for scams. Well, my response would be, well, it depends what type of scam. Because if we're looking at investment fraud, those individuals actually perform better on test of financial literacy than the general population. So we think it has to do with this idea of overconfidence. And a right. little bit of knowledge mm. is a dangerous thing. So. Yeah, you know, professor, we had Professor Keith Jacks Gamble on the show, and I believe his research that uh, he's done up in Chicago would suggest that cognitive decline and this notion of overconfidence are, are two predictive factors for scams and fraud. What have you seen? Because you meant, just mentioned overconfidence. What, what do you see? How does that manifest itself in the research? How it works is you would ask the financial literacy questions, and then you would ask the person, you know, how confident are you that your answer is correct? We find that people, despite being wrong, still show confidence in their answer. So you can kind of look at the difference between accuracy and confidence, mm. and that is, uh, predicts investment fraud. So that's how it really works in the research. We do need better ways of really getting at this idea of overconfidence. It's a hard construct to kind of put into a survey. Yeah. Yeah, how in the world would you measure that? That's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, interview their wives. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> that's right, because it does tend to be males, as you as you noted a moment ago, that that fall into this overconfidence thing. And I want to note for our listeners, uh, you've mentioned the organization FINRA, and for our listeners, that stands for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Is is that correct, Marty? That's right. Okay, good. I just want to clarify that for our listeners. Yeah, and they have a foundation that offers research grants to people that are doing work on financial literacy training and also research on fraud prevention. Great. Yes. So I'm not talking about FINRA, the organization that's the major regulator for broker dealers in the United States, right. but they're kind of their nonprofit arm. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, gotcha. stay tuned. We're going to have Jerry Walsh, the director of FINRA Foundation, on a future episode. Exactly. So. Marty, we started off the show mentioning how emotions can play a part in fraud and exploitation of an older adult. And tell our listeners what you found in that regard. A couple years back, AARP and the FINRA Foundation funded a study here at Stanford that examined the roles that emotions play in susceptibility to misleading advertisements in both young and old people. So basically what they did is they had a group of old people who were ages 65 through 85, and then also another sample of younger people who were 30 to 40, and they divided them into these three groups. Two were emotional arousal groups, and one was a neutral group. So they essentially had an excitement an anger and neutral. And they had them get into these emotional states by playing this computer game (laughs) where they had to press the space bar really fast after (laughs) seeing this little target pop up on the screen. And they could either win money or lose money. So to get people excited, what they had them do is they started off kind of losing money, but towards the end of the trials, they were winning a lot of money. And then for the anger group, they started out with money but then lost money over time. Right. And they Clever. did test the intervention and found out that it, it worked. People were feeling, you know, that sense of, you know, their heart beating, they were excited or they were upset. And then they presented them with these misleading ads. There were things like 
this new fuel will increase your fuel economy by, you know, 50% or this diet pill will remove the fat content from your food, like clearly mm-hmm. misleading. Right. And then they asked the respondents two questions. One was, you know, how credible is this ad? How much do you believe it? And the second one is, if money weren't an issue, how willing would you be to purchase it? And what they found was really interesting. So in the older adults who were in the excitement condition, they were significantly more likely to want to purchase that ad Mm -hmm. than the younger adults. So the emotional arousal conditions didn't seem to have an effect on the young people, but it did on the older adults. Another interesting thing was it didn't matter what type of emotional state they were in. The anger worked just as well as the excitement. So another fascinating thing was that for younger adults, their believability in the ad directly predicted their willingness to purchase it. So it was Mm -hmm. a pretty strong correlation. The more they believed it, the more they were likely to purchase it in all three conditions. But for the older adults, if they were in a state of emotional arousal, that relationship just was thrown out the window. So it's almost like even the people that said, I don't believe it's true, they still were like, I want it. Wow. So God, it's that's really interesting. counterintuitive. That yeah. is. So what, what conclusions, if any, can you draw from that research? It's just that, you know, emotions really eclipse our rational decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. There it is so again. even yeah. when one side of our brain says, this is wrong, this is a scam, or these emotions kind of overpower that thinking and just make us want to act and want to buy. Mm. So, yeah, it's a notion of we often talk about it in presentations of scammers hijacking the older adult's rational brain, and they get them so excited in whatever form that the older adult just acts without, you know, letting the rational brain step in and say, wait a minute, don't don't do it. Right. Yeah. Are there any implications from this research for prevention that you've developed yet? I mean, is there a way to sort of tamp down the emotions, or is it all about blocking access so that the senior doesn't get the pitch that gets them all excited, or do you have any implications yet from this research? You know, one thing that I think is that might be effective is that if we can build in some kind of default strategies when we make big purchase decisions. So, you know, one of them can be never make a decision in the heat of the moment. Always come back the next day to to this decision. And some of my earlier work, I found that salesmen are instructed to never go back to the same house twice. If they weren't successful in getting a person to make a purchase on that first time, don't even bother the second time. And that's because once people are out of that emotional arousal state, they're not going to be effective marks anymore. Well, that's they're right. not interested. Yeah, It ain't happening. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they should just give up on them. So if we can just wait and, and kind of cool off, have that cooling off period, that would be perhaps a way to protect all of us. And those just those strategies just have to be built into our repertoire. Yeah, you know, we have a framework here we call the, or call the three R's, and Art has written about it in his book, Scammed, Three Steps to Help Your Elder Parents and Yourself. And one of those is to reach out, reach out to check it out. That seems like it would be another good default strategy before you buy anything or before you give money to yeah. somebody, yeah. you reach out, whether it's to a family member, a friend, uh, or a trusted advisor for, for some advice. Yeah, and you have to recognize that scam artists will do everything they can to get the person to not do those strategies. Yeah. And we live in this world of information. So I think maybe as 
people age and new generations kind of enter into the limelight, maybe we'll all be used to doing more research on things before we buy them. Everyone goes on Yelp before they pick a restaurant and <laughs> right. reads the reviews on Amazon. So maybe we'll get more accustomed to kind of waiting before we make purchases. Right. Now, what, what have you found or what's your insight into the role of social isolation, loneliness, those sorts of, of problems that can afflict older people in light of all this emotion that, that plays a role? This assumption that older adults are more vulnerable to scams and fraud because they're lonely and they sit at home all day and that they have no one to talk to. And interestingly, in research on surveys of older people, we find that they are, in fact, more socially isolated, but they don't necessarily report higher levels of loneliness or that feeling of social isolation, even though objectively they are more isolated. However, in some of my research that I've done, I found that there is this difference between older adults who are vulnerable to financial exploitation by family members versus older adults who are vulnerable to scams by strangers. Mm. And I found that if older adults have a social network around them and everyone in that social network has their best interests at heart, they're pretty protected from both types of okay. financial exploitation and from fraud. However, if that older adult has no social network, they're really susceptible to scams by strangers. And that's because, as you know, scammers are always making attempts. They're always calling right. on the phone, sending spoofing emails and bogus sweepstakes mail. You know, they're right. always trying to make find their in. And if an older adult is isolated and doesn't have that kind of protective sphere around them, that access point is going to be pretty easy to find. But again, if they have that protective social network, those people can keep an eye out not only on the older adult, but also on the actions of one another to make sure no one is exploiting that older person. And one of the tactics in financial exploitation is undue influence. So if one of those people in those social networks is a bad apple yeah. you know, and does not have the older adult's best interest at heart, they will try to kind of prune away the other social connections in that older adult's network and get them to be more isolated so that it's easier to kind of uh, create this sense of dependency on them and then they can exploit them. Right, gotcha. It seems, seems to me that the takeaway is if you are a caregiver for an older adult or if you're a professional that works with older adults, you really have to be keen and observe and ask questions about the social network that the older adult is involved with and, and not be shy about getting to the bottom of it to make sure you don't have that bad apple, so to speak. Yeah, and I think sometimes it can be pretty obvious who yeah. it is. Yeah, good point. Very good point. We're visiting today with Marty DeLima from the Stanford Center on Longevity, and she's sharing a lot of fascinating research that is being done into the role of emotions and the risk factors for scam and fraud. Exactly. And so we're going to go to a break, but we'll be right back here at the ScammerCast. It's time to take a break during this episode of the ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at scammercast.com and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back. A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years, even more than their fear of death. 
a trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The discipline to grow. The strength of experience. The ability to adapt. Values that endure. Midwest Trust. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. There was a day when the villain was easy to spot. These days, different. Today, technology allows scammers to reach victims across the globe through mail, email, phone calls, and even social media. Know what to look for so you can help protect yourself no matter where you are. We remind you to never send money to people you haven't met in person and to always verify before you send. You work hard for your money. Don't let a few minutes with a scammer separate you from what's taken days, weeks, or even a lifetime to work for. Western Union. Move money for better. Welcome back to ScammerCast, your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Hi, everyone. We're back from break. This is Curtis Bailey, your co-host here at ScammerCast. And this is Art Maines, your other co-host here at ScammerCast.com. And we are having a tremendous conversation today with Dr. Marty DeLima from the Stanford Center on Longevity and the amazing research that she and her colleagues are conducting into scams and frauds, financial exploitation, and all the stuff that we are so passionate about here at thescammercast.com. Marty, you've told us about a lot of research that you've been involved in already there at Stanford. What's uh, on the horizon that you can talk about? 
Well, our goal is to incorporate our financial fraud prevalence study into the National Crime Victimization Survey. So right now, most studies on fraud survey between 200 to 3,000 people, and they're never done annually, so we can't look at changes in the rate of fraud over time. But the National Crime Victimization Survey is administered to 100,000 people, Mm. and it's done biannually. So if we can get a module into that larger survey, we can really understand and track fraud over time and also kind of get this conversation more into the national conversation about crime in the United States. Good. That's that's so important because so many times people are dimly aware or marginally aware of the problem of elder fraud and financial exploitation, but it really isn't a serious part of the national conversation. I'm so glad to hear you say that. And and we're working towards that. Good, good. Now, as I was doing some research for this episode of the ScammerCast, uh, I found a really juicy tidbit on your website at marty-delima.com. And, of course, we'll have a link to that website on our show page here at scammercast.com. But this was your academic presentation at Stanford last year that was titled How to Con Older Adults, Persuasion Tactics. So pull back the covers on that and give our listeners some insider tips for how the scammers do their dirty work so we can educate our listeners about how to counter these dirty tricks. Of course. So what I think is most important to remember is that scam artists didn't invent the persuasion tactics that they use to con people. They use very old tactics that are pretty much used in everyday sales practices to get consumers to invest in something, to buy something, or to donate their money. But the difference is that scam artists are using these tactics to get us to pay money for something that they never intend to give us in return. So this whole exchange is built on a lie. So it's not the the persuasion tactics that are wrong. It's simply what they're being used for that's immoral and wrong. And it's also important to note that these persuasion messages are really crafted to the stereotypical goals and emotions and values about of the target population that they're after. So you can imagine if the target population is people who are poor, the scam might be around quick, easy way to make money or winning the lottery or debt consolidation or something like that. So that's how they shape these persuasion tactics. They really read their mark. What is the thing that that person desires? Where are they vulnerable? And then mm. they'll build their whole game plan and strategy around those stereotypes about that group. Sounds like doing basic market research, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That, that every legitimate company in the world does that sells products. They have to understand the market and right. what the market wants, right? Of course, of course. And, you know, really common persuasion tactics that we see all the time are like authority. Mm-hmm. So establishing legitimacy by pretending to be with a, a well-known organization. This is also called source credibility. And you see it all the time in like the IRS scam. Right, so, exactly. Or when fraudsters call and say that they're a representative from your credit card company or mm-hmm. from your bank. So that's a common one. Another one is scarcity, which we kind of talked about. It goes hand in hand with emotional arousal. And that one's really effective because the target feels like they're going to run out of time if they don't act now or the offer's going to be off the table. So that's another one that works well. One that we don't talk about that often is called landscaping. That's like a rhetorical device, and it's used to 
shape the conversation. So it's where the scam artist or the persuasion agent will use these phrasing of questions like, wouldn't you want to be a millionaire? Wouldn't it feel great to get the IRS off your back? Uh-huh. Don't you want to make your grandchildren proud? So the obvious answer to all of those is yes. Sure. And what it does is it gets the target in this habit of saying yes to the scam artist. And it, right. it's landscaping because it's essentially shaping the conversation and backing the target into a corner where their only option is to agree. That's really interesting because I have a, a long background in hypnosis. And one of the things that I've talked about in presentations is this phenomenon that you're describing as landscaping that in the world of clinical hypnotherapy we call yes sets. It's a series of questions that the person will answer yes to, and like you say, it puts them into a corner where their only option without extreme distress is to say yes. That's really mm-hmm. clever. That's genius. Yeah, well, t- you know, two things. Uh, coming from the legal world, you know, we obviously we're taught very early on anytime you're cross-examining a witness to make sure that you get them to agree with you because the more they agree with you, the harder it is for them to disagree with you when yeah, you ask them there it is. sort of the ultimate question, if you will. But the other thing that in, in this context that really strikes me is the fact that all of those examples you just gave, Marty, had an emotional element to it to get the mark excited and emotionally aroused, which fits right into your other research. Of course, it does. And you have to, if you think about it, you know, when do you ever go shopping or buy something when you're in this, like, down mood? I mean, maybe I guess there's when you're feeling depressed, maybe that's when people head for the ice cream aisle in the grocery store. Yeah, the emotional eating. Right. Right. Retail therapy, need a new purse. Yeah, we're we're feeling, we're doing things, we're buying things because it makes us feel better. Yeah. Um, And it kind of satiates that that drive to to buy. Mm. Yeah, but that's exactly what the scammers do. They offer a solution to make the mark feel better immediately, and and, uh, there you go. So, yeah. Yeah, I also want to refer our audience to a previous episode with Chris Hadnagy yes, talking exactly. about social engineering because it's so fascinating that all of us are social engineers, but what makes it really evil is the intent of the actor. And, and here the scammers are using persuasion techniques that have been around for centuries, but they're using them for an evil purpose. Art, in fact, when you were researching your book, Mm -hmm. you came across a book about ninja mind tricks or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, Yeah. that was great. Yeah, Yeah. it's called The Black Science, Ancient and Modern Techniques of Ninja Mind Control. And and I thought, (laughs) God, I have to have a copy of that. And uh, it turned out to be really helpful and useful. Yeah, yeah, it was found in a in a uh, scammer's uh, library. Yeah, so exactly. To speak, right? yeah. yeah, you don't really know what's on a scammer's professional reading list, so I bought <laughs> <Yeah>. it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, Marty, you've also done some research about how people commit fraud by looking at a bogus insurance company selling annuities, and you know. Uh, we're not here to talk about the the pros or cons and rights and wrongs of annuities, but it was an example that you researched and how the leaders of those companies would use what you call neutralization techniques to convince sales agents to push forward to solicit these kinds of products or, or solicit sales of these kinds of products. Tell us about those kinds of techniques and what your research found there. Neutralization techniques are essentially these really effective self-soothing messages. They're like (laughs) rationalizations, and they're the little messages that we repeat to ourselves when we engage in behaviors that we know deep down aren't right. 
so it's kind of those things that we tell ourselves to help us feel not so bad about ourselves. Yeah. Right, and, right. Yeah, and the salesmen at that annuity company were fed these neutralization messages from the higher-ups during their training sessions. And a lot of them included scapegoating messages, and that was a great way to kind of defer blame so that the salespeople could point their fingers at someone else and say, oh, it's not us that are doing bad things to older adults. It's those other people that are harming them. And they were also led to believe that they had a moral authority to protect older adults from probate attorneys and probate costs by selling them a living trust. So really how this company worked was they would first sell a living trust to older households going door to door, you know, soliciting people that way. But the living trust sale Although it was, you know, fairly legitimate, it was just a ruse. Yeah. And it was a ruse to figure out how much money the older household was worth mm. so that about two weeks later, an insurance agent from that same company would go back to the house and try to convince the older adult to put all of their money, you know, withdraw it from their accounts and put it in to a long-term annuity. Mm. And for people who are in their 80s and some of them in their 90s, it just wasn't the right type of financial product for them. Mm, So that was how the scam worked. But the interesting thing was these low-level salespeople, you know, it was often their first sales job. They had no idea that that was the full scheme. They Mm -hmm. weren't told about that outright. So they were essentially indoctrinated by their trainers to think that they were the good guys. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because uh, as an attorney, I I counsel clients a lot on estate planning issues, and I've never gone door-to-door to to sell a trust. (laughs) I never (laughs) would dream of it. But, you know, one other area that I think particularly older adults have to – look out for and that is the uh the free dinner presentations yes. and lunches and things like that where right. where product certain products you know get peddled but the older adult isn't aware of it until it's too late till they get there yeah you know i think about these kind of things all the time and i would love to conduct research on the neutralization techniques and the rationalizations that scam artists use in order to feel okay about kind of committing these crimes yeah Yeah. and how many have such robust neutralization strategies that they don't even think that what they're doing is immoral and right. you know, sometimes when you get calls from telemarketers, you think about that. And, and sometimes even when you talk to sales representatives in stores, you know, do they really understand the consequences or costs of me buying this product that they're trying to sell? And, or have they been indoctrinated to actually believe in this stuff? If you think about it, who's going to be the better salesman? Is it going to be the guy that's just reading off from a script? Or is it going to be the person who really and truly believes and lives by the product or service that they're trying to sell. You know, yeah. believers make far better salesmen and scam artists. That's right. Yeah. You know, I, I heard a term one time that's sort of a mouthful and probably a little bit jargony. I was at a conference, and the speaker was talking about selective disinhibition from moral self-sanction. Wow, is that a mouthful. <laughs> that is a mouthful. But that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? You know, it's how you override or put your conscience offline, and, and you become this sort of believer, like a convert, to, oh, I'm helping these older people by selling them a trust and then selling them these annuities. And, I mean, it's really, it's it's sort of uh, insidious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. And, you know, we all have kind of a different threshold for where we draw the line from this behavior is wrong, it's immoral, and this is okay. Um, yeah. And I think that 
people who are maybe masterminding the scheme have a way to be able to shift that line for the people yeah. that they're training. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that raises an interesting question. Marty, do you have any thoughts uh, based on what you've seen in your research about things that the financial services industry as a whole can do to be a part of the solution in preventing fraud and exploitation? Yeah, so the financial services industry is just now starting to kind of come on board on these issues. And, you know, we say that they're really the front lines. They're the conduits from which money changes hands from the victim to the perpetrator. So if we can find a way to intercept those losses before they're gone, then you've gone miles in the way of protecting older adults and and any of us from scams. And there's a number of things that they're doing, you know, of course, They have very sophisticated algorithms to kind of look at how our spending and our transaction data changes over time to try to predict what's a normal transaction for us as an individual, what's abnormal. They're even pulling in, you know, unstructured data like things from Facebook and Twitter feeds Mm. to be able to understand, you know, make sure that our our accounts haven't been hacked. But they also have this incredible role to play with older adults because older adults still do their banking often in person. Mm -hmm. And I think the majority stated in a recent AARP study by BankSafe was that the majority of older adults, when they go into the bank, they see someone that they recognize, and they feel that the, per- the tellers recognize them. So that's a relationship, and that's a point of intervention. I would say that the interest in this issue started mostly on the broker-dealer side of mm-hmm. the industry with yeah. financial advisors. Yeah, and right. that's because they work with the same individuals over time and through multiple life stages. They understand that a person's financial goals and what's normal behavior and what's abnormal behavior for them. So they've been much more attuned to this issue, but it's slowly migrated into more of the banking sector, which is important because the vast majority of older adults don't have individual financial advisors, but nearly all have their money in the bank. So that's important. How important do you think it is for those people, sort of the bank tellers, the financial advisors, the frontline people to really be trained to understand the emotions behind scams and frauds? I think that what's most important for them is to kind of have the red flags just embedded in their repertoire so that if they see something, they report it and they act and they get into a habit of, you know, acting on the problem. And one thing that will help that is if they have kind of incentives from their their manager or the company itself to act on financial exploitation because we just see this huge lack of engagement mm-hmm. by some of the frontline staff. Right. What I've heard is that it's a very individual it's there's it differences by individual. So some bank tellers are really attuned. They want to act. They want to help. Same with financial advisors. And others just never do. So it's kind of the same people that are reporting. But if we can kind of pull in the more disengaged uh, individuals who are frontline staff members, then I think we can go a long way. I don't think it's as important for them to understand all of the emotions that go into getting people to buy or invest in things, but mm-hmm. certainly they should understand the principles of undue influence. Right. What we often see is an older person entering into a bank who's shadowed by a new best friend mm. or an adult son or daughter, and it's really the relationship between those two people, the older adult and that 
suspicious other person that's driving this need to withdraw the money or or whatever. So I think if they can pay more attention to those kind of changes in behavior, then we'll go a longer way in protecting seniors. Right. And so we've talked a bit about the financial services industry and what it might be able to do. What do you wish that more individuals were doing to help prevent seniors from being defrauded or financially exploited? So we've talked about the industry. What about the individual level? So if we're thinking about families, like within families, one thing that people can do is to have conversations with their aging parents about financial planning, you know, get engaged earlier before there's any fears or worries about cognitive decline or financial Mm -hmm. exploitation. Also appointing multiple people to act as power of attorney rather than one person so that people can kind of act as checks and balances on one another. Right. And then with individuals, you know, one thing that I think would be interesting is if we studied the people who never fall victim to scams, the people Mm -hmm. who even into their really late ages and even with mild cognitive impairment still hang up the phone if they don't recognize the caller. What is going on with them that they just have such robust strategies that they just never say yes? (laughs) You know, if they don't recognize the the caller or the mail. So and, and what causes older adults to choose to delegate. What is the moment that they, you know, hand over the keys or hand over the financial driver's license to an adult son or daughter? Right. And and what can we learn from, from them that we can hopefully translate into guides or information to people who have st- uh, more trouble doing those 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 behaviors. Yeah, study the successful people and yeah. learn to imitate them. There you go. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool stuff. Yeah. Well, we've been visiting today with Marty DeLima, PhD, from the Stanford Center on Longevity. And, you know, Marty, this has been really incredible. You've really revealed a lot of, of interesting research and implications and your thoughts and suggestions for how we can continue to work on preventing seniors from getting ripped off or financially exploited so that they remain independent and in charge of their own finances and their lives for as long as possible. Right. Uh, Marty, where can people go to learn more about you and your work? So they can go to the Stanford Center on Longevity website. They can also go to my personal website, which is www.marty-delima.com. And they can also go to AARP's website, and the Federal Trade Commission has great consumer guides. Same with the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has wonderful guides for consumers and their caregivers on staying safe from scams and financial exploitation. Great. And we will make sure that we have links to all of those resources and your website, Marty, on our show page at scammercast.com. Thank you very, very much for your time and knowledge. We'd love to have you back at some point in the future as you conduct more research and learn more about this area. And we really send you all of our best wishes for your research and your work and and all that you're doing to uh, reveal more of what's going on with this thing about financial frauds and scams and exploitation. So thanks very much for being with us today on thescammercast.com. And thank you. It was wonderful to contribute. Great. Thank you all very much for listening. We invite you to leave us a comment on our show notes page at scammercast.com. Leave us a story. Have, have you encountered any of these kinds of persuasion tactics or sketchy kinds of, of financial services pitches? Uh, let us know what you think. And if you like our episode here at thescammercast.com, please share it with a friend or colleague. 
So until next time, this is Art Mange, your co-host for ScammerCast.com, saying thank you very much for listening, and thank you for helping us to hammer the scammers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ScammerCast, your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at ScammerCast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, hammer the scammers. The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only, and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.